I'm Jonathan Coleman, one of the pastors here at Anderson Hills, and we're glad you're tuning in to our live stream. Uh, this is our third Sunday uh, where our church campus is closed uh, because of the uh, COVID-19 virus. Uh, but here at Anderson Hills, we want everyone to remain safe. And you can see there's only a few people here, and we're standing six, six feet apart. And, uh, and I think the state of our leadership just wants us to do, to do our part by having you stay at home. Um, and if you need to go out for essential things, make sure you practice safe distancing, and that's what we're doing uh, here today. And I think it's how we can do our part to snuff out this virus. And I hope and pray that this service has been a blessing to you. And I want to thank everyone uh, who's been a part of, of just making this live stream possible. And I know firsthand the leadership at Anderson Hills is working hard to creatively connect with you to continue uh, to help you grow in your faith and especially encourage you in these times. And so I do want to encourage you to keep following your spiritual practices. It will draw you closer to God in this time. Pray and read scriptures, serve and give and worship, share the gospel and find new ways of, of creatively being able to help people around you. Uh, we love each and every one of you and uh, we're praying for you. Our congregation has been making its way through a series called The Story. And it's a chronological journey through the Bible. And we've been doing this for many, many months. Last week, Pastor Mark Putman shared with us about Jesus and the kingdom of God. And so if you dug into your Bible reading plan, you read this week uh, several scriptures about Jesus being the Son of God. And you remember your Bible reading plans available online, on our website, on our Facebook page. And there are five readings there for each day for you. And it'll prepare you for uh, next Sunday, this Sunday. Also, a really cool thing that our pastors are doing, we're writing a devotion or uh, doing that by video to give you a devotion on each daily Bible reading plan. Well, anyway, I wanna, first I want to say it's a little weird <laughs> preaching to mostly empty chairs here and eventually at the 11 o'clock service preaching to empty pews. One thing for sure I know I won't see people falling asleep during the sermon. So anyway, you think about it. It's pretty cool in this walk of life how we're introduced to people. And eventually that person becomes an amazing friend. And in time we get to know them and appreciate who they are. And after spending time with them, we begin to know uh, really cool things about them. Simple things, in fact. Touching things, like, for example, their favorite grater's ice cream flavor. Mine's black raspberry chocolate chip. Their favorite music, or what annoys them, or what makes them laugh. And we get knowledge into what they value, what they believe, and maybe what their passions are. And if they're a good friend, they will share their struggle with you, their pain. And most likely, they will listen to your struggles and your pain and they'll listen and challenge you and build you up especially in times like this that we're experiencing mom and dad had a cabin out in indiana and we had this neighbor named leo and leo was a character and he used to always say get to know me get to know me and i never really realized why old leo would say that 
And so I think today we're really going to get to know more about Jesus and how his mission showed us many things about who he was and is. You see, deep down inside, I think we too want people to know us and and to know our interests, and we long for that relationship and connection, and God understands that need, and God created us for a relationship with each other and above all with himself. And the good Lord wanted us to get to know him, wants us to get to know him, to discover the length, the breadth, and the height and depth of his love. And Jesus came to help us understand who God is and what God values and what God is passionate about. Jesus' disciples experienced this firsthand, folks. They were drawn to him. They followed him. They saw with their own eyes his actions, his passions, his values, his belief. They heard his words, and they called him friend. And deep down, they wanted to know him more. But during their journey, they came to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And in this area of Caesarea Philippi was home to a lot of gods and statues of gods. In fact, the whole city was a place where Baal was worshipped and also Syrian gods worshipped there. And you can see in your mind's eye, uh, Jesus and his disciples looking around at these different gods and wondering what people thought, what his followers thought about himself. So let's look at Matthew 16, 13 through 20. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, the others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asks. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Haiti will never overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. You see, at this intersection of ancient religions, Jesus asks a very inquiring mind, minds want to know question. Who do people say I am? And there's a flurry of answers given by his disciples. And they shared what they heard out on the street, in the marketplace. Some say you're John the Baptist alive, back from the dead. Some say you're Elijah, returned. Others say you're one of the great prophets or even Jeremiah. And finally, after hearing these answers, he asks his closest friends, whom he shared some very deep things and emotions with them, and He wanted to know, right then and there, all right, what about you? Who do you say I am? And his words just hang out there. 
You can hear those brains processing. But then comes in Peter. If you know anything about the disciple Peter, you know that he was bold and he was outspoken. Peter was the disciples who, who was, was the disciple who was always first. And when you read the gospel, one thing you know is that Peter is filled with a lot of faith and passion and boldness. He was the disciple, and if you uh, rewind two chapters ago in this gospel of Matthew, when Jesus was walking on water, Peter was the disciple that said, Hey, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you out on the water. And Jesus said, Come. Peter saw a lot of mind-blowing things come from the actions of Jesus. Feeding 5,000. He saw Jesus heal. He, he, Peter heard his words, and, and, and he never heard words like that from any Jewish rabbi before. And the question Jesus asked was possibly always on the forefront of his brain, right on the top of his cranium. Who is this person that is just amazing who called me to leave my nets and said, follow me? And finally, Peter gets to respond, and Jesus said it was revealed to him. Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Let me just put Peter's words out there for a second. Messiah, son of living God. You see, there's a lot of opinions about Jesus. Every thoughtful person has to answer that question. Just as in Jesus' day, there were various popular answers, and there are many popular answers in our time. And maybe you have an opinion for yourself right now. So let's consider some of the answers to the question about Jesus when he says, uh, who do you say that I am? Or who are you? And that song came to mind while I was writing that the sermon. Who are you? Who, 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 who? Who are you? I really want to know. And, and so we're, gonna, we're only going to dig into this on a deeper level. I wish I could sing like uh, the who, so anyway. But the first opinion is, is that he was a good moral man. And you hear this so much. This opinion is probably formed by many statements that Jesus made. For In fact, like the golden rule, do unto others as they would do unto you. Or love your neighbor as you love yourself. Or turn the other cheek. And we see these moral statements. And people hold on to them and they form an opinion from that fact. From the fact also that he was a friend to sinners. He was a friend to the poor. He advocated for the downtrodden. Yet within these powerful words that fell on the ears of these followers and religious leaders, he kept referring to himself as the Son of Man. Jesus chose to do this as a descriptor for himself. In the Old Testament, especially in Daniel chapter 7, 13, it says the Son of Man. And in Daniel, it constantly proclaims the Son of Man, and it's a reference to a divine being. And Jesus used this term. For example, he said, to one of his followers, he said, uh, foxes have holes and birds have, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. This, quote, good moral man, this decent fellow or well-respected man of influence kept referring to himself as I am. Jesus used that term several times. And in the Old Testament, that's how God would refer or respond to people when they wanted to know his name. For example, when Moses asked God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me what his name is, then what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am sent me. And so Jesus kept using God's title in these I am's. And he also gave incredible uh, uh, wrapping around it. For example, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry, or whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go and find pasture. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I am the way, truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. These aren't statements of a good moral man. These are statements of a person that can bring about many, many things in our lives, can, can do amazing things for us. There's spiritual sustenance. There's access to God. There's eternal life through him. There's sacrificial love. There's wisdom and truth for the human journey and so on. And in these statements, they go light years way, way ahead of a good moral person. Jesus also proclaimed that people's sins were forgiven. And whoa, buddy. He got in trouble for that. He did. They would be enraged. Only God can forgive sin. But he kept on forgiving people's sins. He would say, go, your sins are forgiven. This good moral man stated he was greater than Abraham. He called God Father. He taught us a prayer. How to pray to the Father, the Lord's Prayer, where we can uh, communicate and experience many benefits in that prayer. At one time, I didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I had some information shared with me during my upbringing. And I came to the premature conclusion that he was a good moral man, just like this opinion. However, I was on this Christian retreat. And I heard a story read in its entirety. It's all of Luke chapter 15. And it was about a lost sheep and how the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one and and a lost coin a woman's looking for this one coin and she, she tears the house apart and then this this son is lost this one of two sons goes and into the far country and it's called the story of the prodigal son and in those words in this parable it helped me see that Jesus was seeking after me and that I was far away from God and that I needed to come home. That story made me see the incredible love of God. That story helped me see how a person who is lost can be found in God. And a person who is dead in sin can be redeemed and made alive again. And I heard that God was waiting for that prodigal son. In fact, when he saw him coming into a distance, he ran to his son and he heard his confession and embraced him. I found that evening and felt in its entirety and believed it that my sins were forgiven in that moment. And I have to confess that I, I came to God for the very first time for selfish reasons. I wanted my sin forgiven. But I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and I felt the weight of that sin 
given. And I found out that the greater hath no one than this for he to lay down his life for his friend. And I began this friendship, and I found that I wanted to learn from him in his ways. And that good moral opinion fell to the ground like dust, man. The second opinion of Jesus that we hear a lot is he was a demented fool or a fraud. People with this opinion, you can sometimes see it. They cringe when they hear his name, and it's not a good cringe. They roll their eyes, and they say, oh, there's preacher going with this Jesus again. And in their, in their, mind, they, 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 in their mind, they just believe that people, he's, his message has tricked people into believing. And maybe that he was, he was a person that was out of his mind or detrained, just a mega maniac. Or he was a pied piper who led blind followers into destruction. And in fact, religious people in Jesus' day thought the same thing. They even called him the devil himself. But he wasn't a fool or a fraud. A fool or a fraud wouldn't love people the way he loved them. His words of love brought admiration. He didn't turn people into lunatics. He made them better. Think about it. Common fishermen writing some of the most revered books in human history. He didn't turn away people. When the disciples uh, came to him, sometime, at one time they said, oh, the children stay away from Jesus. Jesus said, no, let the children come to me. A fraud wouldn't do that. He performed multiple miracles to give people back their lives. And he didn't do it to draw a crowd to increase his ego or make a name for himself. As a matter of fact, after he would perform a miracle, he would sometimes whisper, don't tell anyone about this. And he never made a profit or took a penny for his miraculous works. I know for a fact, there's no foolishness in his teaching, in his words, and in his actions. Not a fraud. Not a good moral teacher. C.S. Lewis at one time was uh, a person that didn't believe in Jesus. And when he gathered all the facts, he wrote this quote. He said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying this really foolish thing that people often say about him. That is Christ. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would, would not be a great moral teacher. He would be, either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so I put that out there. And I look, and I see the ministry of his disciples and the proclamation that they made. 
and they did mighty works in the name of the Son of God. They were sent with good news to proclaim to this loving world that God gave his only Son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. They proclaimed that, and they saw him resurrected and alive. I remember when I was um, sitting in my Old Testament class, or New Testament class, excuse me, in seminary, and uh, take this off. And Dr. Wong was teaching. He was lecturing on Jesus' followers. And uh, he, he, was, he was an amazing guy, very strict, very stern. I, I do impersonation. He, he, he would say, Jonathan Coleman, and that's how he did attendance. He just called on somebody, lead us in prayer. <laughs> and it was, when he would lecture, he would lecture like that, and he was just so amazing. He used to be an engineer and, and just became an outstanding theologian and a professor. One lecture, I'll never forget it. He talked about the fact that never in the history of the world did someone give their life for a past positive event. Meaning, the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, in the history of the world, you see men and women lay down their lives for a future hope. Or maybe they want to be free of some tyranny. Or maybe snuff out opposition or conquer or strive in order to gain. Jesus' followers laid down their lives to share good news about an amazing supernatural event that occurred in the past. That ministry, death, resurrection. Why? Because they believe with all of the fabric of their being that he was the son of God. In our Bible reading plan uh, this past Friday, we looked at the transfiguration. And Jesus validated this in his transfiguration. He took Peter, James, and John to show his true identity. And transfiguration, or as in the Greek word of the Bible, really is metamorphosis. It means to change, not as an end in itself, but it means to propel one forward into a new and better life. And the transfiguration was really not all for the benefit of Jesus. It was for the benefit of Peter, James, and John. Let's look at this together. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. Just, there, just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came. He touched them, get up, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. You see, this transformation, this mountaintop experience for Peter, James, and John, these, these Jewish men see their heroes, and they don't want to leave. They want to remain in that sunbath of God's glory. And it, this transfiguration gives three witnesses to see that love relationship between the Father and the Son. And God, the Father, was so pleased with the ministry of his son and what he was doing. And he proclaimed that right there. 
And they wanted to bathe in it and stay right there. But Jesus led them back into that rhythm of teaching, healing, caring for the broken, that hurting world that they lived in in that time, back in the reality of life in the valley. And in fact, when they come down from that mountain, the first thing the Son of God does is go back down that mountain and heal a boy. And John, one of those witnesses, really gets it, and he writes things like this. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, we have proclaimed concerning this word. And you can hear it. And these people know, without a shadow of a doubt, with essence of who they are, that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, I serve on some boards, and, and uh, we use parliamentary procedure a lot. And I dig parliamentary procedure. I love studying Robert's Rules. And there's this rule in Robert's Rules call, called call the question. And a member of the floor has to have the floor and be recognized, raise their hand before speaking. And they have to make that motion. And what it does, call the question, really stops debate. It's an expression of your wish not to hammer uh, or your colleagues anymore, but you have all the facts, and they're ready. They, get, they lose patience. They're ready to vote. The motion requires a second. There has to be at least two people in the room who want to cut off that debate. Two-thirds of the people need to vote. And then the chair can call the question, and they can vote on the matter. I want to call the question. Jonathan, you've been preaching too long. <laughs> Who do you say the Son of Man is? Who do you say the Son of Man is? I just want to let it hang out there. Answer it out louder in your mind, in your heart, in your soul. You see, when we say Son of the living God, Son of the living God, we begin to experience the ministry of Jesus Christ. And our identity changes. We become in, in a part of his ministry. Son of the living God. We're a part. And this is bestowed upon us. It happens when we proclaim this. In John 1, 9 through 13, it says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was, not, he was in the world, and though the world was, not, was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. And in that proclamation, when we call the question and we say, you are the son of the living God, that ministry of Jesus begins to be active in us. The other day, I was, I was really laying in my bed. I watched too much news. And uh, I was scared. A lot of fear. Almost like on the verge of a panic attack. I have to be honest, man. I know maybe if you were honest, you'd share that as well. You're concerned for others. You're concerned for your friends. You're concerned for your family. 
was concerned for myself. Oh, I got a lot to do in this world, God. I don't want to be taken out by this stupid virus. <laughs> and I prayed. And the peace that surpasses all understanding came upon me. And that peace came from the Son of God. Because he said, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. It's not a peace that's found in this world, it's a peace from heaven. And I rested in that, and I slept like a baby. Who do you say Jesus Christ is? Who do you say the Son of Man is? Will you join me in prayer? Dear Lord, this is, um, this is a pretty <clears throat> significant question, and you ask it of us. And Lord, we want to come to you with a yes. We believe you are the Son of God, living God. And Lord, you, you let us come in many, many different ways, whether it's selfish or whether it's out of fear or whether it's, it's Lord, just running into your love or coming from the far country into your arms. You're the kind of God that just absolutely and simply wants us to come and be your children, no matter what age, no matter the circumstances. And God, my, my prayer is, and I, I pray this into the homes and into the lives of those who are watching, that their lives will be no longer be the same, proclaiming a yes, I believe. I believe that you're the son of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and those who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So, Lord, we want, we want everlasting life today, now. We love you, and we thank you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.